is Ben Weingarten for Encounter Books, and today I'm joined by Jay Nordlinger, author of the new book, Children of Monsters, An Inquiry into the Sons and Daughters of Dictators. Jay's prior books include Peace, They Say, A History of the Nobel Prize, as well as Here, There, and Everywhere, a collection of his writings. Mr. Nordlinger is music critic at the New Criterion and a senior editor of National Review. At National Review Online, he writes the invaluable and oft-entertaining Impromptus column. Jay, thanks for joining us. Oh, pleasure to be with you, Ben. Thank you. Jay, what was the impetus for writing a book in which you had to dedicate many days of your life, including Christmas Day, as you note, to researching the families of some of the most despicable human beings to have walked the face of the earth? Yeah, that was a strange idea. That was a strange thing to have gotten myself into, wasn't it? Um, Well, I was visiting Albania in 2002. I was on a little kind of a speaking tour in the Balkans. And Albania was about 10 years beyond communism, though still in pretty bad shape. And Albania had experienced really one of the worst dictatorships of the 20th century, the dictatorship of Enver Hoxha. He was just about the worst of the worst. By comparison, the dictatorships in, let's say, uh, Hungary or Yugoslavia were picnics. Really, Hoxha was like no one except for Kim Il-sung in North Korea. He used Albania as his personal dungeon. No one came in, no one went out of the country. Uh, And it occurred to me while I was in Albania, did Hoxha have children? Because I could hardly imagine being the son or daughter of such a man in such an environment. And if he had had children, did they still live in Albania? Did they go out? Uh, How did people treat them? What did they think of their dad? What are their lives like? What are they like? And I'm a magazine writer primarily, so I thought, you know, the Hoja children might make a good magazine piece. And then my next thought was, well, you could do a survey of such sons and daughters and make a book of it called Children of Monsters. And uh, years later, uh, an excellent publishing firm called Encounter asked for the book, and I wrote it. So you have basically chronicled for us the Hall of Fame of dictators and their families in the 19th, uh, or rather the 20th and now early 21st centuries. What were some of the common themes that you came across as you surveyed these families? Almost all the children had a tough or unusual time. They were all quite privileged, but you might say they were disadvantaged too. It's a mixed bag. Also, these children, these men and women, often they're both victims and victimizers. And they they are really born into a very strange circumstance as the son or daughter of a dictator. Uh, Well, uh, sometimes their dad becomes dictator later, after their birth. But they're very, very privileged, and yet they face hardships. And often their lives are rocked by imprisonment, uh, exile, Uh, murder. Uh, Some of the women, some of the daughters had the experience of seeing their husband executed by their father. Uh, Some of these, most of these children are really quite loyal, at least outwardly. Some have doubts, some outright rebel or defect. And and their lives, I think I'm quoting a song, might be James Taylor, I'm not sure, that their lives don't roll easy. Some do, most don't. 
And there are some characters that one can tell as they're reading through Children of Monsters that you clearly found fascinating as you delve deeper and deeper into their backgrounds. So who are the one or two characters that you most enjoyed researching? Well, uh, Mussolini's children are, are pieces of work uh, as a rule, and so are the grandchildren, including Alessandro Mussolini, uh, whose aunt is Sophia Loren. Alessandra now serves in the European Parliament. She's the leader of so-called neo-fascism in Italy. Svetlana Stalin is, is all too fascinating for her taste or for anyone's taste. She led a most interesting and turbulent life, uh, came to America, came to New York, was a big fan for a while. The magazine I worked for, National Review, declared it her favorite magazine, gave us $500 in the 1970s, I believe. She had a very turbulent life, and she wrote beautiful and powerful and, pardon the cliche, searing memoirs. Uh, Idi Amin had about 60 children. Uh, at least one is highly interesting. Interesting. I had a lengthy interview with him. Pol Pot had a daughter rather late in life. He was 60 or 61. And this young woman, she got married last year. And um, she earned a graduate degree in, of all things, English literature. This was in Malaysia. So you, you just never know. You started by mentioning the Mussolini's, and one of the things that I found somewhat staggering, staggering, somewhat fascinating, and also somewhat disconcerting is how popular their brand of fascism is still to this day in Italy. Speak a little bit to that. Well, mercifully, it's not all that popular at the polls, but, but people find the Mussolini's fascinating, and they... They usually give the, them, the family, a very nice reception. And there's a certain amount of nostalgia for that period. Uh, well, especially among the young who, who didn't, didn't live it. Uh, but they imagine, some of them imagine it was a kind of romantic time. And Alessandro Mussolini and the rest of the family have many fans. It's true. You mentioned, I believe, uh, very early on in the book, uh, you you walk through the Stalins, and you mentioned Svetlana Stalin, and, and then also his son Vasily, and they are kind of foils, sort of the evil and the good, who are kind of the archetypes for the different family members that you find as you survey these dictators' children throughout history. So speak a little bit to Vasily as being the archetype of the rotten tyrant's son. Right. Well, there are, certain, there are certain sons who are the perfect little monsters of bigger monsters. They, they are absolute brutes. They have total license in their society, and they take complete advantage of their license. And this group includes uh, Vasily Stalin and one of Ceausescu's sons in Romania and several of the Qaddafis and one or two Assads and... Uh, both of Saddam Hussein's sons, uh, maybe a son of Mobutu, who, by the way, this son was nicknamed, the Mobutu son was nicknamed Saddam Hussein. Uh, these people, they're little monsters. And, uh, well, that's not even to mention the Kims in, in North Korea, right? Or the Assads, uh, sure. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but Vasily Stalin lived a very sad life, and he made other people quite sad. He was drunk, he abused his power, he was brutish toward women, 
Uh, he was terrified of his father, the only person who could control him, and sometimes Stalin did, and sometimes he didn't. And uh, this young man, Vasily, made life very difficult for a lot of people. And uh, things went very badly for him after his father died. Uh, he knew they would. He had no friends left, no real supporters and defenders. He went to jail, and he drank himself to death at about 40. And uh, you may have noticed, I think, in my afterward, Ben, that I, I had a discussion while I was writing my book with a friend of mine, uh, Ignat Solzhenitsyn, who is a musician, a pianist, and a conductor, and he's the middle son of the great man's three sons. We're talking about Vasily, and now I, he did many terrible things in his life, Ben, and I don't excuse him. Uh, people are responsible for themselves, even when their circumstances are strange. But I pointed out to Ignat that, that, that Vasily was a son of the worst man in the history of the Soviet Union, and Ignat himself is a son of the best man in the history of the Soviet Union. And neither man chose that birth or that fate, and it must have made a difference. Now, I don't cut someone like Vasily endless slack. He was terrible. He was a brute. But here is a guy who, after his mother committed suicide when he was 11, was raised by Stalin's NKVD bodyguards, who were brutes. And so it might have been hard for him to turn out non-brutish, is all I'm saying. And to your point, Svetlana, the foil that I mentioned, while repudiating communism and, and Stalin's dictatorship, as you mentioned, uh, an, an early-ish supporter of National Review, even Svetlana still waffled a bit later in life when it came to her home, the Soviet Union. And, and I think that shows the pull of these dictators who, where no matter how much, no matter how much information their kin are presented with, there's still something that connects them, whether it's blood or ideology. And even for someone like Svetlana, who saw the light of freedom, she still felt a pull towards the Soviet Union. Speak to that. She certainly did, and she felt a pull toward her father, and she was, to use the modern parlance, conflicted. There were times when she saw absolutely clear. She was clear as, as, as day about freedom and unfreedom and tyranny and humanity, communism, anti-communism, and so on. And she spoke and wrote very powerfully on this general subject. And at other times, she was cloudier, especially when she was feeling bitter, she was feeling ignored, not a big enough deal in the West. Uh, as you pointed out, or, or uh, implied, she, she re-defected to the Soviet Union in 1984. Um, she wasn't really famous in the West anymore. She felt kind of disappointed that she wasn't accepted as a big literary and intellectual and political deal. And she went back and immediately regretted it. And she would have been trapped there forever, but lucky for her, Gorbachev came to power. And after 18 months, he let her out. And she flew back home and landed at O'Hare Airport in Chicago and said, I had to go away for a while to realize how wonderful it was here in freedom. But she was a, a pilgrim. She was a seeker. She led, as I said, a very turbulent and, to a large degree, vagabond life. And she died in a Wisconsin nursing home a few years ago. Now, how exactly did her path cross with Frank Lloyd Wright? 
oh, this is so strange. Let me tell it as quickly and as clearly as I can, because it's almost Byzantine. Frank Lloyd Wright had a wife uh, who became his widow. And this woman, I think her name was Olga Vanna, I'd have to check it. She once had a daughter named Svetlana. And this daughter married uh, Wright's senior apprentice, his foremost apprentice, a man named Wesley Peters. And driving once pregnant and with a, a toddler of theirs, I believe, Svetlana was killed in a car crash. Flash forward decades. Mrs. Wright, the widow, reads about this new Svetlana who's come from the Soviet Union, the daughter of Stalin, and feels this mystical connection with her and invites her to her home, the Frank Lloyd Wright compound in Arizona. And she has an ulterior motive. She wants Svetlana Stalin to meet and like the widower, Wes Peters, the, the, the widower of Mrs. Wright's daughter, Svetlana. Svetlana accepts the invitation at last. She goes to Arizona. She meets Wes Peters. And in, I believe, a week or three, I can't remember, they marry. And Mrs. Wright is introducing Stalin's daughter as my daughter, Svetlana. And Svetlana had about four marriages, each of them brief, each of them, each of them rather odd. And uh, she had children from three of the marriages. She had three children, including a daughter with Wes Peters, who now, I believe, manages a, a boutique clothing and jewelry store in Portland, Oregon. Of course, the, the natural end to that story. Mm. Amazing. Sticking with uh, the Soviet Union slash Eastern European theme, uh, you spoke at some length with, with a fascinating figure to my mind and likely to a lot of our listeners' minds, Ion Mahai Pachepa. And Pachepa, for those who aren't familiar, was the highest-ranking defector uh, ever to leave the Soviet bloc, and he wrote a book, co-authored a book recently, Disinformation, which was fascinating. And he spoke about the Ceausescu regime, uh, for which he was one of his top intelligence officers. Speak a little bit to what you found out about Ceausescu's children, including the terror, Nisu, if I'm pronouncing that properly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's Niku, um, uh, but I'm not 100% sure. Uh, Ceausescu in Romania wanted to have the first communist dynasty ever. And for this, he was in competition with Kim Il-sung in North Korea. But he wanted to be succeeded by one of his two sons. And he also had a daughter, brainy young woman named Zoya, who was a mathematician, got a PhD, in fact. And so, but the, the elder son, Valentin, really had no interest in dictatorship, power, politics. He wanted to live rather quietly as a physicist. And Niku was so bad, such a brute, so awful, he just, he raped and tortured and killed his way through life and was drunk all the time. And even the old man, Ceausescu, realized that he was not quite stable enough, this boy, to succeed him when the time came. But, he, but Ceausescu was hoping for some kind of secession, and it might have to, a succession, and it might have to be his wife, Elena, who was probably equally monstrous to to her husband. Uh, so all this got cut short when, when Ceausescu and Elena were put to the wall 
when they were summarily shot on, I believe, I believe Christmas Day, 1989, right? And so th those plans went awry. Now, contrasting Niku with someone who you actually come to admire, in your own words in the book, uh, yeah. one of Idi Amin's sons you spoke with at length, and you found him to be an interesting figure and even an admirable one, as I mentioned. Speak a little bit about him. Yeah, Jafar is a strange case. It's hard to know what to make of him. He's a loyalist to his father, Idi Amin, who killed thousands, probably tens of thousands. Who knows how many people? There's a dispute, but it was a lot of people. He was uh, a dictator, a killer. He, a very, very bad character, Idi Amin, unquestionably. And uh, like other Amin children, Jafar loved his father and cherishes the memory of his father and whitewashes his father and is an apologist for his father. So, and I, I'm, I'm going on and on, so what in the world could be good about this man? What am I talking about? And yet, and yet, he is concerned with Amin's victims, the survivors, and he busies himself with recon reconciliation work. He has a foundation, and he wants to devote the rest of his life to reconciliation between Ugandans. And so it seems to me that in one breath or one thought, uh, Jafar is a terrible apologist for his father, but in the next thought or next breath, there is some recognition, and he feels a sense of responsibility, and he's had this burden of being Amin's son. And I came to think, I, I concluded that Jafar is a stand-up guy, and very rare, if not unique, among, son, among sons and daughters of dictators. Amin's family sought asylum, I believe, in Saudi Arabia. And one of the themes that you notice as you read through the book is that many of these horrible figures were able to seek out asylum either in the Middle East or take comfort and aid and comfort and effect in European countries while their peoples starved and suffered. One of the things that I found interesting is that as you look forward towards Gaddafi's family in the book, you speak about one of his children touring sensitive American strategic sites. How does yeah. that come to pass? <laughs> America's a funny country, isn't it? Um, well, one of the Gaddafi sons, I, I forget his name, went to business school. A lot of them went to business. They all studied in Europe, I believe, Western Europe. And he had an internship at a major multinational company, and I think this internship was largely in the United States, or entirely, and uh, he had this tour, and I believe this is the one that was cut short, I think he went to West Point as well, uh, on a tour, and this was, the, I believe this is a visit that was cut short because the Libyan Civil War was beginning in 2011, and he had to hustle home to lead a brigade in defense of his father's dictatorship. From yeah, the, the Gaddafi crew is a horrible, horrible crew. These are largely these boys, and there were many boys, I think six, I can't quite remember. Uh, they were goons and, and thugs, and they had absolute or near-absolute license, and they caused mayhem, and, and, and most of them, some of them, maybe about half, died in the war, and uh, I think one or two are in exile, and one or two are in Libyan prisons, including Saif al-Islam, the famous one, who tried to go straight and be a Western-style liberal, or at least an Arab reformer. As we move now into a post-Iran deal world, 
one of the particularly pertinent chapters dealt with the Khomeini family. Speak a little bit to some of the insights that you pulled out in your study of the Iranian mullahs. Ah, yes. Well, Khomeini had two sons, and each served as the top lieutenant to the father. Uh, Each died in his 40s, I believe. Uh, The first son died while the family was in exile in Iraq, and uh, the second son died after his father's death. Uh, Both deaths are thought to have taken place in mysterious circumstances. I, 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 I think the, the first son died of so-called natural causes and, and wasn't killed by, by the Shah's secret police. Uh, some of Khomeini's reporters said that, he, that this, this man was killed by, by, by the Shah, but he, he wasn't. That's really far-fetched. It's quite possible that the second son was, filled by, was killed by his father's successors uh, who were bothered by this son. And there were daughters as well. Uh, Khomeini had daughters. And some of them are, hmm, one of them is, by Iran standards, she's, by, Iranian st- by, by Khomeini standards, she's thought to be a bit of a liberal, uh, but she's really not. However, there was, there is, a grandson, the son of the first Khomeini son. And he is a genuine liberal Democrat and, and anti-Islamist. And when the United States uh, and its allies uh, knocked over Saddam Hussein in 2003, uh, this Khomeini kid went to Iraq to live, and he advocated a similar overthrow of the dictatorship that his grandfather started. He even came here to the United States and spoke in the belly of the beast, the American Enterprise Institute. He huddled with the Shah's son, and then he was called back on an emergency basis to Iran, called back by his grandmother, really, Khomeini's widow, because, frankly, the dictatorship was threatening the physical security, the physical well-being of his family. And so they shut him up pretty quickly, and he's been basically shut up, and I believe under basic house arrest, though not imprisoned, ever since. And we're talking, I think, late 2004. A fascinating case a uh, Khomeini grandson who called for the overth- for overthrow of the Khomeinist dictatorship, even through force of American arms. As I was reading through your book, one thing that struck me, and I think of this in context of Brezhnev and Bashar Assad and, and countless others throughout history, is how the West repeatedly finds a way to romanticize some of the most horrible dictators. You know, they're lauded in the press as, reformers and moderates, etc., etc. Do you think that's because we in the West seem to look for redeeming qualities in peoples? Are we naive perpetually? What's your take? We are taught, most of us from the cradle, not to be too big for our britches. We are taught to be humble, not to think of America as anything special in the world. You know, and sure, we have our system and it has many, many flaws. Other people have their own ways of living and One's not better than the other. We respect all people, blah, blah, blah. So that the tyrants, including communist tyrants and and, um, traditional Arab dictators, uh, get excused. And I think think people have a great fear that they will be uh, ethnocentric, that they will think too well of their own country. 
And I think many of us are taught to concentrate uh, on our own country's flaws and see virtues in other systems. And sometimes there's very little virtuous in other systems. Uh, if, if you can find good in Mao Zedong, for example, uh, I, I think you're seeing um, faultily. But Jay, I think you're neglecting the Crusades. <laughs> yes, yes indeed. You mentioned at one point, very briefly, Gene Kirkpatrick in your book, and I'm not sure what you think of the famous essay about dictatorships and double standards. Uh, I think it's indisputable. Yeah, did, did your studies of these tyrants and their families at all influence your thinking on American foreign policy in a world where, sadly, tyranny still reigns? Some people are unappeasable. Some are appeasable, some aren't. And I think that people have to accept a certain, the fact of a certain unappeasability. And I think you, if you're a Western power or a liberal democratic power, I think you do as much as you can in the area of human rights and uh, democratic reform. Uh, there's some people you can't seem to help. Others you can. But I think tyrants of whatever stripe, ideological stripe, have many more things in common uh, than they have differences. Um, you know, show me a communist dictator versus an, an African tyrant versus an Arab tyrant. Um, they all, they have a lot in common. And namely, that, as to use Orwell's language, the, the, the stomping on a human face with a boot. Whatever color the boot happens to be, black or red, makes no difference to the persecuted. Peoples obviously evolve and change over time, but do you agree with the assertion that, and this is kind of one of the takeaways that I come to from your book, there are some peoples who find dictatorship, find control over their lives, potentially more amenable than an alternative, or stated a different way, are there some peoples who yearn more for freedom than other peoples? Well, there's such a thing as... as liking the status quo and fearing a change because the change might be bad. But we, we have some experience recently of split societies. You think of West Germany and East Germany, and you think of North Korea and South Korea. And of course, the second example is the more dramatic. Uh, they are the same people. They have the same ancestors. They speak the same language, they have the same customs, they eat the same food to the extent that North Koreans are allowed to eat, and yet they're in, in starkly different systems. Um, North Korea is, as Kirkpatrick said, a psychotic state, an almost perfect communist totalitarian state. Uh, South Korea is a vibrant democracy, whatever its flaws, and, and everyone's Korean, you know, on, on, uh, on either side. And it is literally night and day. And you remember the famous satellite photo taken at night showing uh, one half of Korea lit up and the other plunged in darkness. And I, 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 I do believe that every people wants to live free of persecution, certainly, wants to have basic human rights, and wants to get up and you know, a person wants to get up and, and 
work and produce and love and have a family and care for that family, and so on. So um, it's a very interesting question. Are some peoples more freedom-loving than other peoples? I think that some people are unfortunate and they can't get out from under a particular boot. But I can't believe that anyone is happy under tyranny except for those participating in it and wanting to lord it over others. And sometimes I wonder whether even they themselves are happy going through life as brutes. What are the one or two lessons or takeaways that you hope readers will walk away with from reading Children of Monsters? Well, uh, the book is, on one hand, a collection of, I hope, very interesting stories, fascinating life stories. On the other hand, there are some general points to be made, but you can't really go too far. For example, this question of nature and nurture that seems to be so important. I think of the two Ceausescu boys. Uh, Valentin has lived more or less blamelessly. He's lived quietly as a physicist, as an institute, at an institute. He, as far as I know, has never harmed a hair on anyone's head. And his brother Niku just lived, lived to rape and to uh, harass and to lord it over others. H how can you explain that? They, they, they are individuals. So my book, uh, it's true that it's a survey, if you will, or, or an inquiry into people who share a fate, uh, who are the sons and daughters of, of, dic of dictators. That is true. But they're all individuals. And they have their own stories, and they cope with life in their various ways. And and I think one takeaway is that um, you can't do much about the hand you're dealt, about the composition of your hand, uh, but how you play it can make a big difference. And you may have more choices than at first seems possible. Does that make sense, Ben? Yes, uh, absolutely. And it, it's a debate that will rage uh, till the end of time. <laughs> yes. Yes. The name of the book is Children of Monsters, an inquiry into the sons and daughters of dictators. And we've been speaking with its author, Jay Nordlinger. Jay, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Appreciate those questions. For more from Encounter Books, visit us at EncounterBooks.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Intro and outro courtesy of Kurt Vile's Freeway.